These are days of tough times and ongoing uncertainties. But in Spring Branch, we're taking tangible steps to help our local businesses by telling neighbors about PPP loans, linking them to online courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places, it's all here. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, and today I have for you a pretty special episode of Looped In for a couple of reasons. The first being is this is our 100th episode, so we are pretty excited about that milestone. But what's more important is what you're about to hear. For some quick background, the idea for this show came out of a brainstorming session I was having with the Chronicle's business editor about cover stories for a new section we just launched called Texas Inc. We wondered, what if we could bring together some of the city's most prominent figures in real estate, the individuals who helped shape our skyline and our suburbs? What if we could get them all in a room and just get them talking and telling stories about the booms, the busts, their accomplishments and their mistakes? And we did. We had a roundtable discussion that became a story in the December 10th issue of Texas Inc., and we wanted to share the audio of that conversation here on Looped In. It was a long one, so we're splitting it into two parts. Now, there was one person that we invited who was unable to join us, and that was Gerald Hines. Mr. Hines is 93, the oldest of the group, and we were sorry he wasn't there, but we talked about him and told some good stories. So it was like he was there in spirit. Also there in spirit was another one of our guests who had to join us by phone. So without further ado, please enjoy part one of my conversation with the legends who helped build modern day Houston, Looped In's 100th episode. Can I first just get everyone to introduce who you are, just say your name and what what you do for a living and your age? Do you want me to go first? Sure, go ahead, Joe. (laughs) All right, I'm Joe Colasso. I'm a structural engineer by training. I'm a professor in the College of Architecture at the University of Houston. And prior to that, I had a structural engineering firm here in Houston called CBM Engineers. And I started working in Houston in 1966, which is 52 years ago. So I've been involved in many of the tall building developments in this community. And how old are you? I am 78 years old. I'm Welcome Wilson Sr. I'm almost 91, but uh, nine months ago I was turned 90. uh, And I've been a real estate developer in Houston 61 years. Before that, I was in government service, both at the federal level and the local level, and including the military in Japan. I was a naval officer in Japan. But I've been in every flavor of real estate, made mistakes in every field, 
known to man. <laughs> and uh, I started off in the subdivision business. My first project was Jamaica Beach in Galveston. And uh, I went on to develop Tiki Island. Jamaica Beach and Tiki Island are now separate cities in Galveston County. Uh, I did other, seven other projects down on Galveston and uh, built uh, Lakewood Forest here in Houston, Lakes of Bridgewater in Houston, uh, several thousand lots each. And uh, then I did multifamily, a lot of projects, and there's still standing projects I built like 50 years ago, uh, like Fox Hall Apartments on the Katy Freeway. Uh, was mine. And Fox Hall is the reason that we'd never sell anything anymore. Because if I had kept Fox Hall, it's been 100% occupied 50 years. The mortgage would have paid, been paid off twice. The cash would be falling in. <laughs> but I did, uh, you know, whatever money I got for it, I spent on the first week, I'm sure. And then I did retail centers, uh, three office buildings downtown. And then by mistake, we got into the industrial real estate business. Yeah. And we liked it so much, we stopped doing everything else. Uh, Mr. Finger? Well, uh, I'm uh, an apartment developer. Uh, I'm uh, not a merchant builder. I uh, buy and develop uh, the project and own and operate uh, and uh, he, Mr. Wilson, uh, talked about uh, Fox Hall that he built uh, many years ago. Well, uh, I built my first large project, uh, 317 units on Chimney Rock off of Bel Air. It's called Colony Oaks. I started in 58, and I finished the project in 60. And uh, that math is uh, 58 years old. And... Um, in those years, when uh, I got the financing, they, it was a 20-year fully amortized loan. And I have found uh, through the, the many years, the, uh, I've been in business now over 61 years, the apartment business works just a lot better when there's no debt. <laughs> <laughs> and he's famous for building projects with no debt. I found that. I found that. To this day, I can have. I beg your pardon. I think so, Ed. I think so. <laughs> All right, Ed Wolf. Um, tell tell us a little bit about yourself. And how how, wait, how old are you, Mr. Finger? Oh, uh, eighty uh, four. Pushing <laughs> eighty five next month. When, wh- well, I look, I look I look forward to those years, but, uh, <laughs> but 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 I am going to have an eighty third birthday next month. Okay, great. Right. Okay, great. good. Well, good. Really going after the, the elders. <laughs> well, we're we're wiser, Ed. <laughs> uh, I've been in the real estate business in Houston about fifty eight years, seventeen of which was spent with Weingarten Realty as their executive vice president in the development of shopping centers. And the last 30, uh, 33 years have been Wolf and Company, which uh, has grown and uh, specialized. Our niche is totally retail, totally shopping centers, development, brokerage, management, uh, investment. And uh, that's our specialty and that's that's really our niche. 
and the business, like everybody else's, has changed a great deal over the years. But there's probably one common denominator that's influenced each specific industry more of real estate than anything, and that's the price of land. The price of land over these years has steadily gone up and up and up and continues to do so. And that comes about with the densification of Houston. Uh, but it has certainly impacted all of our businesses and how we approach it and how we develop it and how we justify it. And that's a common denominator, I think, that we all share. All right, now I'm going to ask you, you all to go back a little bit. And I'm interested in hearing how you ended up in Houston. And some of you, I know, were... were probably had had roots here were, or maybe were, was born here, but what was it that made you decide this would be a good place to stay and start your business? Anyone can start. Yeah, I, I will. Okay. I will. I, I, uh, I uh, grew up in a family. They were uh, merchants, and uh, from an early age, I, I, th- I thought I would join my fam- the family business, and uh, about the time Furniture I— Furniture business. That, that they were furniture merchants, mm-hmm. and about the, the time uh, I was finishing high school, uh, my father uh, retired from the retail business. So I was left without a profession. So I went to the University of Texas and studied both engineering and business. And I came out and worked for a home builder for a number of years. And uh, so much of real estate, uh, uh, Ed uh, Wolf had just talked about. Uh, how the price of land has has so influenced what is developed, and uh, from density uh, to uh, the cost of financing, et cetera. In addition, the the moment in time, uh, Houston is the only great city, uh, or major city, I should say, in the, the United States that has no barriers to entry. We have no zoning requirements at all. Literally, you can take your the dart and throw it at a map and go to that tract of land and draw the plans mm-hmm. uh, and you can build a warehouse, a hospital, you can build a, a retail center or an apartment, et cetera. Uh, you must get approval, of course, through the building department for construction, but there is no requirement of what you can and cannot build. There are, there obviously we have a planning department that it, as over time there are more requirements on on, uh, on safety and accessibility and, and utilities and so forth. But we're an open city which attracts developers from all over the United States, and that is really what has made Houston so great, so dynamic. Uh, is that it's just an easy easy city to develop, and and it didn't hurt that we are the home base for fossil fuel for worldwide management, geophysical, geotechnical, and we've enjoyed that growth. It's very cyclical, mm-hmm. and, and that's in the development business. Our business kind of follows the, the, the cycles. Uh, prices move up and move down. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an exciting place to be. Mm. What, what brought you here, Mr. Colasso? Uh, I was... Uh after I finished my college, I was working in Chicago for an architectural firm that did tall building design. And a young gentleman from Houston named Jerry Hines came up there. 
and he wanted to build a very tall building in downtown Houston, which is now One Shell Plaza. So I was assigned to that project, and I started commuting from Chicago to Houston, first once a week, and then Jerry Hines wanted to do Two Shell Plaza, and then he wanted to do another building, called, which is now called 2100 West Loop, and then he wanted to do One Shell Square in New Orleans. So I started spending two days, three days a week here, and I fell in love with the city. I felt it was very dynamic. I loved the climate because I don't like the cold weather in Chicago. <laughs> and I saw the opportunity to come here. So I got married and moved here in 1969. And since that time, all these uh, dreams have proven true because this has been really a fantastic place for a young engineer to, especially one who's interested in tall building design, to, to work. And uh, I've been very fortunate with some very good clients and uh, sustained me for a long time. And then uh, I come from a family that's a family of teachers. So I got very interested in teaching. So I started teaching at the University of Houston in 1970. That's 48 years now. And I've been teaching ever, ever since. And I'm now, now a full professor at the University of Houston. Wonderful. Mr. Wilson, did you ever think about leaving? Never. <laughs> uh, I grew up in my early years in Corpus Christi, Texas, when the Great Depression was going on. It was wonderful for a six-year-old, terrible for adults, but the Great Depression was wonderful. Why? Because all your cousins lived at the same rooming house that you lived in. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. Uh, then in World War II, uh, we moved to Brownsville, Texas. I, le I went to Brownsville High School, graduated, and Brownsville Junior College and graduated. And uh, I missed World War II by a month. Harry Truman, Truman dropped two atom bombs on Japan. So I had orders to report in September, and he did that in August, and the war was canceled. And I was very disappointed. <laughs> As a young guy, uh, the opportunity to serve in World War II was a wonderful opportunity. But uh, my father believed in Houston. So he insisted that we go to this university that nobody had, Brownsville, Texas, had ever heard of called the University of Houston. Now, I was 18. He believed that being in Houston and graduating in Houston, you'd get your feet on the ground kind of thing, and uh, it'd give you a real advantage. So I came here when the Houston metropolitan population was 550,000 people, and now it's six and a half million people in metropolitan Houston. So he was right. I'd never th I'd left when I was in the Navy, as you required to do. And I left when I, when Eisenhower was president, I served uh, in his administration for five years. But other than that, I've always been in Houston and I wouldn't want to be anyplace else. Jesse Jones set the tone for business in Houston. First place, we welcome anybody to come to Houston and compete with us. Mm -hmm. And we don't con we consider it. There's one more guy there here that's going to buy a house or that's going to do this and that and spend money and and we welcome it. And Jesse Jones set that tone. If you go to Dallas and succeed, you're resented. And, really? Uh, <clears throat> huh. The uh, because you're not a Dallasite. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so Houston is the most welcoming for a businessman in the, the most welcoming city in America. Ed Wolf. I came here and worked in the oil company, Texaco, as an engineer for five years, and then jumped head, head over toe into the real estate business. Attended every class they taught in real estate at U of H, and uh, went to work for wine gardens, as I said, for 17 years, building neighborhood shopping centers. In 85, we formed Wolf and & Company, and have been still building shopping centers and working around them and making them happen. But not only is the Houston environment welcoming, the city, the administration, the governmental aspects of it also are developer business friendly. And things are done, we may argue now that we can't get them done fast enough, but overall compared to other cities, very, very friendly to the developer and the builder. And that too makes it easier and makes it work. Uh, zoning, I agree, and I worked on many of those campaigns against it. And we've solved the problem with the uh, deed restrictions by deed restricting residential properties protected. It's not perfect, but it certainly has fostered economic growth and economic development and is one of the keys to our success real estate wise. And where where did you come from? Where were you born? San Antonio. San Antonio. Okay. All right. I want to get into uh, business a little bit and um, some more of uh, of your accomplishments. Mr. Colasso, you were the structural engineer for a lot of tall buildings, as, as we've established, uh, in Houston, across the U.S., and overseas. What was the tallest building you were ever involved with? From a design standpoint, the tallest one was the J.P. Morgan Chase building downtown. Okay. It used to be called Texas Commerce Bank when it was built. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 75 stories and 1,000 feet tall. Uh, but I was also involved in a project in Dubai, which is called the Burj Khalifa. It's a building that's uh, 2,700 feet tall. And at the moment, the tallest building in the world. It's going to be superseded by one in Saudi Arabia pretty soon. Were you involved (laughs) with that one too? No. (laughs) There were other reasons why I decided not to get involved. So how many stories, how many floors is that? Uh, I don't exactly know because I'm not involved in the project, but I'm going to guess it's... Well, the one in Dubai. Oh, the one in Dubai is 169 stories. Okay. I know very little about engineering, okay. um, but you're you're a teacher, so so you're <laughs> able to put things in, right. in terms that people can understand. Can you talk about how you do that? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, obviously, it requires a lot of engineering knowledge and a lot of engineering experience. But fundamentally, we're dealing with two things. We're dealing with the forces of nature, which are the vertical loads that the building is subjected to, which is the weight, its own weight and the weight of the contents. And secondly, what we call lateral loads. In Houston, it's hurricanes. When hurricanes blow on buildings, they tend to push them. And you have to be sure that the building is not only stable, but it'll also have no damage in a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to deal with foundation conditions, which are very unique to Houston. So we, we put all these factors together to make it work out. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about foundation and soil. Yeah. Houston, from what I hear, has a very unique soil. 
for for building. Can you talk about uh, can you talk about maybe some of the subtleties of our soil? Well, the interesting thing about Houston soil is it's what we call Beaumont clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have done deep holes to investigate the soil, and we've gone down about 200, 250 feet in downtown Houston, and we just keep hitting clay. So clay is a material that is compressible, so that when you put weight on it, it'll start to settle, and it causes very large settlements on the buildings. So in very simple terms, what we do is if a building weighs 100,000 tons, what we try to do is excavate down about 100,000 tons of soil so that when you put the building on the, at the base of the excavation, the soil below it does not know that you've added any weight. It's take, you've taken off 100,000 tons of soil, you put 100,000 tons of building, so the soil below it is, is fairly neutral on, on its uh, bearing pressures. So that's, that's how we minimize the movements of the soil. The, the, this foundation system, the loose term for it is floating foundation. It's like a boat. When you put a boat in the water, it goes down till it displaces the same weight of water compared to the weight of the ship. So that's how we build buildings in downtown Houston. So the downside is you have to dig fairly deep holes. For uh, the J.P. Morgan Chase building, for example, the hole is 63 feet deep. Mm-hmm. So and you have to have water table problems. You have to lower the water table to enable construction to go forward and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. And you have to protect the streets from caving in. So there's a lot of technology that was developed in Houston for that purpose. And you worked with uh, Gerald Hines, you said, on a number of projects. What was he like to work with? Uh, He's uh, very cool, very analytical, and uh, very driven by performance. He's got certain criteria that you have to meet. But also I found him to be... Fairly innovative in the sense that he is always trying to build a better way to build buildings. And the nice thing that, and one of the hidden secrets of Houston is that we have several unique things about buildings in Houston. For example, the One Shell Plaza building for a very long time was the tallest concrete building in the world. Nobody knew it at the time, but it was. And even today, it's the tallest lightweight concrete building in the world. Second, uh, when we did the Pennzoil building for Mr. Hines, we did something we call composite design. And I'll just very quickly tell you what it is. When I was starting in the profession, there are only two ways to build a building. You build a steel building or you build a concrete building. Well, my former boss developed a halfway uh, methodology called a composite building, where you build the floors out of steel, but the vertical elements, the columns and walls, are built out of concrete. So if you look at the Pennzoil building, the walls inside the building are all concrete, whereas the building's all steel. Hmm. And that technology was first started on the 2100 West Loop building here on, in the Galleria. It used to be called the Control Data Building. That's the first building in the world using composite design. And then we took it forward all the way to the J.P. Morgan Chase building, which for many, many, many years was the tallest composite building in the world. It, and stayed that way till about four or five years ago when the Freedom Tower in New York went a little taller. Uh, The other interesting thing is I was involved with Mr. Hines on the Transco building in the Galleria, which is now called the Williams Tower. And very few people know that that building, the first occupancy was in 11 months, and the building was finished out in 16 months. And it was the all-time record after the Empire State Building in, in the heart of the Depression in 1932. The next fastest building ever built was the Transco Tower. I had and, no idea. Yeah, all these are what I call the hidden secrets of construction in Houston. 
and we were involved with that one. Uh, also, there's a little hotel downtown. I call it little, but it's a 32-story 32, 32 former Holiday Inn in downtown Houston, uh, 605 rooms. And uh, we introduced to Houston something called the Flying Forms, a technology to build concrete buildings fast. And we were building a floor every four days. So that building went up so fast, and that became the way to build uh, residential structures all over the world after that. So there's been a lot of firsts here in Houston, which unfortunately very few people know about. Is it the Holiday Inn, the the one that became the Days Inn that's now vacant? it is vacant, correct. Huh. Mr. Finger, how many apartments have you built in Houston, would you you guess? In uh, the greater Houston area? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 22,000. 22,000. Okay. Um, Your properties have become known for the quality of the construction and the level of service that they bring. When you started out in this business, what was it that made you say, okay, we're going to focus on kind of these two things? It it was, it just came with the territory. Uh I, I, uh, at that moment in time, I was a a struggling uh, developer. Uh, I lived off of uh, whatever earnings the uh, apartment uh, building uh, was successful, having cash flow remain after income and expenses. And I I knew to receive it the next month, I didn't want to lose any of my tenants. Mm -hmm. So service became extremely important early on in our career. And we just took the position that we'll just treat it as if we live there. We wanted it nice, not some of the time, all the time, for the business, really, as as Welcome uh, started early on telling you about the hotel business. It's it's a one day, a 24-hour business. Well, ours is 24 hours, but it goes on every day of, of the month and the years. It's seven days, night, Sundays, and holidays. Uh, the, the resident here in Houston, by and large, pays a third of his gross income for rent, mm-hmm. one-third. And and the apartment is his home by choice. For whatever reason, he doesn't own a single family. He chose to rent an apartment, and this is his home, and he's paying for service, and he wants it, and he, she, wants the service, as I said, just all of the time. And in Houston, with our, our broader range of, of weather, uh, you know, th- most things happen when people are at the apartment. So uh, people start arriving at the end of the workday uh, after 5 o'clock, 5, 6, 7. And that's when the demand on, on everything, all the utilities, which, you know, which runs the air conditioning and, and the power runs all, all of the uh, appliances. And those things break, and it so happens that there are more problems in the, in the, in the late afternoon and, and evening and night than during the day. And you have to be prepared to take care of that resident, not some of the time, all the time. So it's extremely difficult, and you have to design the workforce accordingly so that it's available for the service. And so it was, uh, it was an easy decision. Uh, and and I, I would say that a goodly part of the success is the low turnover. And I attribute that to the service. Certainly great location and a fine product, but it's taking care of the resident that is so important. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Mr. Wilson, I wanted to ask you about Tiki Island and Jamaica Beach. I think that everyone who's traveled to Galveston, I mean, you drive right past Tiki Island every time, right? How, how did that come about? Well, uh, my partner uh, in the early days was Bill Sherrill. Bill Sherrill, who's one of the few people alive older than me, he's a year <laughs> older. <clears throat> Gerald Hines, by the way, is two years older. Uh, and I, I have a comment to, I'd like to make about Gerald, too. He could not be here today, by the way. He was obviously invited. Well, he's... A, a great guy. I've known, I've, I met him when he was developing two-story office buildings on Richmond Avenue. Yeah. Two-story office buildings. And then he went downtown and built the Shell Building. Nobody thought he would succeed. It was a big, big success. Uh, anyway, back to Jamaica Beach and Tiki Island. In Jamaica Beach especially, I made every mistake known to man. For example... I sold a 90-foot lot on the Gulf of Mexico for $3,500. <laughs> a 90-foot lot. Well, I sold out the first week. <laughs> and I could have gotten $10,000 even 61 years ago. I was having lunch at Berry Hill Tamales sitting at the bar uh, a couple of months ago, and a guy who I know came over to me, and he said, Welcome, didn't you develop Tiki Island? And I said, Yes, I did. He says, You remember those two lots right at the tip end? There was 400 acres of 1,200 lots at Tiki Island. And I said, I remember them very well, the most expensive lots I had in Tiki Island. He said, What did you sell them for? And I sold $18,000 each. He said, well, I just bought one of them for $500,000. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, but my mistakes at Jamaica Beach had everything to do with not knowing anything about real estate development. I mean, I knew nothing. I'd never worked for anybody but the Eisenhower, and, uh, and he didn't teach me much about real estate. And... Uh, I worked for the University of Houston uh, as assistant director of the College of Nursing uh, <clears throat> briefly, and uh, I was an assistant to the mayor of Houston uh, for three years. And uh, But I knew nothing about real estate, and it, it showed. For example, when I built my first canal, the engineer told me, that uh, all I had to do was put go down six inches into the sand, and uh, that would be adequate. Well, it didn't make any sense to me, but I, I built them that way. Well, it, it, it was terrible. The sand kept going down, and every with the tide going up and down, and whatever. And I, uh, one thing I do uh, is I have a list of 50 things, which is entitled, How to Succeed in Business and Life by Avoiding My Mistakes. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> one of them is, if in your gut you don't agree with it, never listen to an expert. 
Hmm. See, the, because he was an engineer, I thought, God, he must know everything. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, but anyway, I can give you other examples, accountants and architects and, and other people who give you advice, but, it, but in your gut, your gut feeling is seldom wrong. But you, if you didn't know anything about developing real estate, you had to learn along the way. Who, who taught you the most about it? Me, my mistakes. Yeah. And uh, I made them in every field of real estate. Yeah. Back to Tiki Island. I assume you named it Tiki Island. I didn't. I wanted to call it Buccaneer Bay. Oh. See, Buccaneer Bay has an association with Galveston. And, uh, but my partner, Bill Sherrill, he noticed that when we drove to Jamaica Beach, he would see this land over on the right that was about six inches above sea level mm-hmm. at the causeway. Mm-hmm. So he began to wonder about if that privately owned or is it owned by the state? So he checked in and sure enough, it was privately owned by, I think it was five different owners. And uh, so he came to me and said, you know, this is 25 minutes closer to Houston than Jamaica Beach. And uh, we can build canals that will furnish enough fill by digging the canals to raise the level of the land to five feet. And uh, so it was a great idea, but it was all his idea. So I, I uh, agreed to let him go ahead and buy the land, which he did. And then just as we got going, the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, appointed him to the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. And he left town and sold it out to me. But uh, it was Bill's idea, no question about it. But it was a b- huge success. Mm-hmm. Huge success. Mm-hmm. Location, location, location. I was waiting for that to come up. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, uh, I dispute that being the only factor. Oh. I think success in real estate, it's the economy, the economy, the economy, not location, location, location. If you have absolutely no control over the economy, none, and uh, it seemed to me that I would start up an apartment project in a hot market and open in a soft market every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyway. There's one other greeting, though, uh, welcome. It's perseverance, perseverance, and perseverance. <laughs> true, true. Everyone, every one of us in the business all these years have persevered all kinds of challenges, all kinds of obstacles to overcome. And we persevered as best we could. And that really, I think, is a common ingredient, a common thread that the successful developer has and needs to have. Yes, it's location, but you can have the location, but you still got to make it happen. And to make it happen, you got to persevere. Well, I might, I might add, and I say this uh, as it relates to my industry, the, the uh, apartment rental business. Mm-hmm. If it's a secondary location... You may never, ever get success. You may never get to stabilization in, in, in Houston, Texas, because of 
the 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 demand for the for new construction it it has to be a primary location for because that is where people will live they will go to to the main and main intersection uh, uh, to live and uh I can't control the rent because the consumer does the establishes the price mm-hmm. but that but I can keep the building occupied because that is where people will want to live so a primary location that'll draw the people in obviously you have to have a competitive project and the consumers get going to set the price so we're going to be competitive so I'll have a price and it's so cyclical it's up and down so I can't I can't time it for the for the high price or the low price but I early on uh, this is prior to the crash of the 80s I learned that because at that time it's a little bit about what uh, both you had uh, perseverance and welcome is saying if you're you know as long as you have the economy well let me tell you what uh, what happened to me I had lots of suburban apartments and then when the when we fell out, when the oil and gas industry failed and we lost the better part of 200,000 jobs, employment jobs, in, in 81, 82 through 86, there were not the bodies to go around. But I had, at that time, 18 projects. Six of those were main and main locations, and I kept occupancy. The balance of those projects, which were really nice suburban apartments, but there was no real need to live there when there was so much other vacancy. And I learned from that, and they remained vacant. And there was no, no bodies to walk through for me to discount the rent by 50% or 75%. They just, you know, the economy in Houston did fail. So I'd, there were some lessons learned. One, you know, never build unless there's demand, mm-hmm. and, uh, and for sure, too, it's got to be the great location. So uh, I like perseverance, and I like a big economy, but survival, I, I'm going to invest more money for the, for the main and main than, than a, a very inexpensive price for a secondary location. I think, and, and certainly the multifamily location is primary. I think a lot of what you said could lead to a long conversation. The The one thing that sort of sticks out to me is only build when there's demand. And so many builders in this town don't follow that that rule. Well, that's a, that's a modern happening. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one man's perspective of, of, the, of the current economy for the last three years. And what's great about being in the development business, and, and it really doesn't matter whether it's industrial or or retail, uh, warehousing, or, or multifamily, or single family. If there is money available, capital available for the builder to borrow money to build, he will build. He'll find it. <laughs> it's true. Uh, he it's, will, uh, he uh, will build. I've and, often and, said, that, that, like Marby said, if a developer gets it financed, he's going to build it. Yeah. For example, uh, the Wortham nephew built a b- building downtown. I tried to talk him out of it. I said, my God, the economy is uh, terrible. Uh, he said, "He said we've done our studies, but he had it financed. He built it. 
and he lost it. And uh, the same with... Uh, what building was that? It's the one that has the an interesting top that looks like an Egyptian pyramid. Mm-hmm. Or Heritage Plaza. Mm-hmm. Yes, Heritage Plaza, the mm-hmm. headquarters of Texaco. Okay. Time means everything. Joe, was but, that was that one of yours? Yeah. <laughs> the same thing happened to Harold Farb. Uh, exactly. Built a high-rise building that was Magnificent. huge, Magnificent. and I tried to talk him out of it. And uh, on San Felipe. He said, uh, no, we're going to be open about the time the economy turns around. Mm-hmm. Well, he had no control over the economy, and no one does. And uh, anyway, uh, so if a developer can finance it, he'll build it. <laughs> All right, everyone. That brings a close to part one. But please stay tuned later this week when we will release part two of our conversation with Joe Colasso, Ed Wolf, Marvy Finger, and Welcome Wilson Sr. In the meantime... If you don't already, please subscribe to Looped In on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please give us a rating or a review. And as always, if you have an idea or just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Facebook or Twitter, and I am at N Sarnoff. See you for part two and have a great week.